What's up, Gumbo listeners? Dimitri is here dropping episode number 114 for you today. And I have Daniel Galancy, founder and CEO of Atacama, on today. Daniel has provided Bitcoin and blockchain-related advisory services for private corporations, investment management firms, and U.S. state and federal regulators. And Atacama offers scalable file-level security to protect your sensitive data that does not rely on passwords or servers. And so, Gumbo listeners, Daniel discusses the importance of distributed key management for encryption, the zero-trust paradigm, and where the cybersecurity industry is heading in the future. So, let's get right into the episode. Daniel, how are you today? I'm well, how are you? I am fantastic and amazing, and it is definitely a pleasure to have you on the gumbo. So, really looking forward to learning about Atacama. So, why why don't you start us off with giving the audience some information about Atacama, um, what you guys do, and also kind of your story around it. Sure. We provide a super unique form of encryption for your data at rest. So, what does that mean? Everyone is familiar with the concept, or not everyone, (laughs) probably everyone listening to this podcast is familiar with the concept of encryption and encrypting data at rest. Uh, And in general, encryption of data at rest comes in a variety of sort of what I'll describe as traditional forms, right? Very basic, full disk encryption, right? You're protected from somebody stealing your laptop, right? Kind of very 20 years, 20 years ago, right? Um, an encrypted zip file where there's a password for the particular, you know, for the zip file and you can de- decrypt it with the password, right? Or, or, or any sort of uh, uh, password-based encryption for a file or for a unique data object. Very straightforward. We're all familiar with it. Um, centralized key management or identity access management linked encryption where you may have a full volume or a set of files or a folder or a series of things that are encrypted. And then when you authenticate with a system or a network or active directory or whatever it may be, the keys to decrypt all of those things are automatically provided, right? People are familiar with that as well. And that I think is one of the most common forms of encryption in an enterprise context. We do something very different. So we encrypt at the object level, at the file level, but we split the keys into pieces and we put one piece of the key on your laptop, one piece of the key on your smartphone, one piece of the key on your colleague's smartphone, et cetera, et cetera, you know, various different locations. And when it is time for you to access that file, a request is sent out to assemble the pieces of the key, assuming a human being says, okay, <laughs> it has to be a human being. Um, we'll talk about machines in a little while, but it has to be, for, this, for this explanation, let's say it's a human being. Human being says, okay, uh, the piece of the key from your smartphone is returned to your laptop. The pieces of the key are reassembled and boom, the file is opened instantaneously. And the nice thing about this is if there is an attacker sitting on your machine and the attacker wants to access some particular file, you're going to know, <laughs> you're going to get a notif- You're going to know exactly what's going on. It's very difficult for an attacker to hide out and access information that the attacker wants to see in the absence of you knowing about it. So if you have 100,000 files encrypted and, uh, you know, 
the attacker says, okay, I want to see third quarter financials.xls, right? The attacker might try to open that file, but you will know exactly what's going on. And you'll say, wait a second, I'm not trying to open third quarter financials.xls, and you will deny that request. Yeah, so so it sounds like it it provides like real time alerting and information around like if someone is really trying to access anything that that you have secured, you will be immediately notified, and also it will also be very difficult for someone to try to steal some of your your digital assets, so to speak. It's a little bit more than real time alerting, and I probably should have mentioned that last. What it really is mm-hmm. is distributed key management. Okay. Right. So the basis of what Atacama provides is distributed key management for encryption. You know, if you think about encryption normally, there is a key, and the key could be in the form of a password, or the key could be stored in a server, or the key could be, you know, wherever it is. Here we take the key and we split it into pieces. So there is no one point of attack, no one point of failure. And as a consequence of that, it's much more difficult for an attacker to get access to the piece of data that you've encrypted. In order okay. to do it, it becomes far more difficult. If, if the difficulty of hacking into your laptop is X, the difficulty of, of hacking into both your laptop and your smartphone is not 2X. It's X to the some power. It's some much you know, higher number, right? And, and that's what makes Atacama so much more secure. Also, just like some of the recent things that just happened, like, you know, we were affected by the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, ransomware event, you know, and I was driving around trying to find gas for my my wife's car. Um, So ransomware is just, you know, continue continually a increasing thorn in everyone's side. And it's it's complicated, like to really protect everything that you have on your system, uh, your entire infrastructure, uh, the on-premises stuff, also the stuff that's in the cloud. So it's a lot of different places and endpoints that need to be protected. So I guess for you, Daniel, why is cybersecurity in the cybersecurity world such kind of like a, a complicated mess? <laughs> and how, how can we ever sort through it? Is it really an issue that can be resolved or will we always be chasing our tails with security? I thought you said you're going to ask me easy questions. Well, <laughs> yeah, th- this is an encryption-based response that requires for you to chop your answer up into multiple bits and pieces, and maybe give me half now and half later. Well, let me let me okay, let me answer your 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 question as as directly as I can, and then I'll talk more about encryption. Right. So, you know, can we ever sort through this? Look, as systems become increasingly complex with more and more moving parts we increase the attack surface, right? And, and what are we doing as, as a society? We have ever-increasing expectations for what systems can do. And as a consequence of our ever-increasing expectations, we have ever-increasing complexity. And as a consequence of ever-increasing complexity, we have an ever-growing attack surface. And we're not going to solve the the part about the human desire for more and more functionality, we probably don't even want to solve that, right? Yeah. We, don't want, right we don't want to get rid of innovation. What we want to do is approach as much as possible, and I hate this, I'm going to use this phrase even though it's a, it's a, bit, of a, buzz, it's a bit of a buzzword, approach as much as possible a zero-trust paradigm without, without 
creating too much of a usability nightmare. And that's a very delicate balance to strike. That's what we're trying to do at Atacama, and I think there are other companies out there that are trying to do that as well. You know, what do I mean by that? If we're going to have a series of complex systems that are all interconnected, what we want to avoid is creating a situation where there is too much federation. We don't want authentication with system B or access to data on system B and system C and system D and system E all predicated on access to system A. If the attacker gets access to system A, we don't want that attacker inherently to have access to systems B, C, D, and E. We don't want that, right? So we need to create a series of gates, but we need to do it in a way where users are not saying to themselves, hey, this is such a pain in the neck. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. And then they complain, and they, right? So you know, how do we do that? We, we need to embrace what we already have instead of adding on extra items. So, you know, for example, something that people have but hate, right, are, you know, for example, RSA tokens, right? And the more the more contemporary replacement, which is, you know, TOTP based on, you know, Authy or Google Authenticator, right? People have it and they hate it, right? They hate it. Uh, nobody wants to enter in the six digits and they complain. So what can we do to continue to have that segmentation between the various systems and yet not have that pain in the neck element that makes users so unhappy? Well, there are lots of things that we can do from a usability perspective. For example, what we at Atacama do, you don't have to enter a bunch of digits. You get a big pop-up, big green button. <laughs> you just tap the big green button, right? And that's, that's sufficient because of the way we do our, the way we arrange our cryptography. Right? Because we split these, the tapping of that big green button is sufficient to tell the system, hey, please return the relevant piece of the key. And we can embrace that sort of user experience in tons of different contexts. The way we sort this out is by saying, look, we can't get rid of ever-increasing complexity. The best that we can do is segment pieces of complex systems that would be interdependent from an authentication perspective, segment them and not have them interdependent and instead create an easy to use, right, very user-friendly mechanism for, for the system to know that the user that's looking at that data or wants to look at that data is in fact the appropriately authorized user. Okay. Got it. Got it. I, I appreciate that answer and that there's a lot of love and hate just uh, from a security perspective of having to do extra things in order to make sure you're protected. But unfortunately, it's the world that we live in. And, um, you know, as, as I was looking through your background, I was like, wow, this guy is really smart. Um, so I, I really want to tap into, you know, not only what you know about the security industry and st starting a company, but I want to know, like, wh what do you find most fascinating about just the entire cybersecurity industry? Because I know you have experience in a lot of different things, but what's, what's most fascinating to you about the industry? The, the apparent set of standards and the apparent lack of standards simultaneously. <laughs> mm, let's, let's dig into that. <laughs> there are tons of written standards. There are tons of, of ways that we are supposed to do things as an industry. But if you dig into 
architecture of most systems, few follow all of the relevant standards. And this is not me pointing a finger of blame. This is me saying it's incredibly difficult to follow all of the standards and all of the rules. Nobody has enough budget to do it. Nobody has enough time to do it. Uh, nobody has enough patience from their user base to do it. It's not that we don't know how to protect our systems. It's that we aren't necessarily, when I say we, I mean, you know, the, I should really be saying, you know, CISOs, CIOs, those who are in charge of protecting systems, number one, aren't necessarily given the appropriate set of resources, right? Number two, don't always know with precision what, you know, what the right set of standards are to protect their system, right? Because it can be quite confusing. We, we have a lot of standards and a lot of procedures that we are, we are sort of told to follow, but they don't necessarily fit into the right boxes for, you know, a particular use case. We have regulatory requirements that don't necessarily match the actual security requirements on the ground. Great examples of that are, you know, regulations that say um, you have to, I'll, I'll use encryption, you have to encrypt your data at rest, but they don't say how or what that means. And now you've added a cost burden because you have to check the box and do what the regulators require, but you haven't necessarily enhanced security. Right? You, you, you've taken a step back because you've spent budget on doing this thing to satisfy the regulators, but you haven't actually enhanced security. So overall, you know, what am I saying here? We have all of these rules that we're supposed to follow, but we're never given the resources to follow them properly. And those resources are not just inclusive of money, right? It's, it's money, it's patience from management, it's patience from users, it's staffing that's required, right? It's the disambiguation of rules that are actually intended to enhance security from rules that are just, you know, spat out from regulators. That's, I think, the, the core issue here. It's not that we don't know how to do it. Mm. It's that there are okay. a lot of things that get in the way. And D Daniel, I, I wanted to touch back on, on ransomware a little bit because it's, it's just such a, a hot topic. Most people are like, I see, I see a lot of enterprises and a lot of companies now paying the ransom. Like I, I just read something about a 20, I think it was, whether it was 20 or $40 million was paid as a ransom to get access to their data as a result of ransomware. And I just read another one where they paid, you know, nine million, four million. I guess, what, what's your opinion? Like, why do you think companies are still having to pay the ransom? I split ransomware into two categories. The first is what I'll describe as traditional ransomware. And in traditional ransomware, obviously, the, the attacker is going to encrypt your files and the attacker has the key and that's it. And if you have backups and you can restore those backups quickly enough, you don't care. <laughs> you say, I'm not going to pay you. I don't care. Right? So let's, let's call it category one. Category two is ransomware where the attacker gets your data and says, I have your secrets and I'm going to expose them to the world unless you pay me. It's a far more insidious form of ransomware. And it creates this sort of continuous extortion paradigm. Where, where the attacker can just, can, you know, say over and over again, you will pay, you will pay, you will pay, you will pay. You hear about those less frequently, but they're out there and those are more terrifying. Let's talk about type one, category one. I have a friend who said, 
category one ransomware is sort of a disease of the of the downtrodden. Uh, and and what does he you know what did he mean by that? Yeah, he didn't mean it in, in a snarky way. He wasn't trying to be a jerk. He was saying, look, if an enterprise has the right architecture and sufficient resources to do things like keep regular backups, <laughs> right? Yeah, and to be able to restore those fairly quickly, then ransomware is is rendered moot, right? That's the issue. And this sort of goes back to what I was saying before about enterprises knowing what they need to do, but not necessarily having the resources to do it. Right? Enterprises know that they need to have regular backups or you know, embrace something like you know, a, a cloud storage where you can version control back instantaneously, but they don't necessarily have the resources to do it. And being denied those resources puts them in a position where they can easily fall victim to category one ransomware. And it's a shame because it, it really doesn't have to happen to anybody. It, it's, it, is a fully, it is a fully preventable disease. It is, a, it is a disease for which we have an inoculation that has been around for years and years and years. But people, people for a number of reasons, have difficulty obtaining that inoculation. Yeah, yeah. right. I'm just going to say, I, I have a follow-up question to that, that it's, it's a disease and, you know, people don't, you know, they, they know that they need it, but I guess from you, what are some really easy steps that a company or a person or an enterprise, whether it's small, medium, or large, can do to enhance their security? If an enterprise is not using cloud storage where they can version control back instantaneously, then that enterprise is missing out on a huge opportunity to avoid ransomware. Now, the enterprise may be concerned about using that sort of cloud storage for either regulatory purposes, or they're sort of saying, well, we're not in control of our own data, we want to have stuff on-prem because we want to have our own control. I understand that concern. And that's actually where encryption comes into play. Right? If you're encrypting your data and then you're, you're, you're popping it into some sort of cloud storage, then you no longer have to be concerned about a third party snooping on your data and you get the benefit of constant backup and constant version control. And that's terrific. Right. So, so that's a really good way to put a stop to that. And at the same time, not to have the concerns associated with embracing third party storage. Have you ever thought about innovating or, or creating some type of technology that utilizes the blockchain for security purposes or, or reasons. Have you ever thought about that? And if and maybe maybe it's a futuristic thing that that you stay up at night thinking about. You know what? I should do something with the blockchain and and um, and use cryptocurrency and you know just to kind of make things more secure. Have, have you ever thought about that? I mean, I think about that all the time, but it's a very <laughs> I, I, I I've worked on projects like that in the past. And the word blockchain seems to mean a variety of different things to a variety of different people. I have my own definition, and I think that that definition probably differs materially from the way others would define it. Um, when I think of a blockchain, I think of a, a, an open public blockchain. Uh, and open public blockchains inherently have a unit of value attached to them. They are inherently as 
one would describe a cryptocurrency or crypto asset based machine. There are others who will talk about things like private blockchains and distributed ledger technology. And most of that stuff, um, in my view, tends to be more sizzle than steak. What I think we've we've seen is that there's a huge amount of excitement about that industry and not a ton of understanding as to how all that stuff works. And the consequence is you get a lot of situations where there's more sizzle than steak because people sort of think you can use this magical machine for all sorts of purposes when in fact it's not a it's uh not a mile wide um and a mile deep it's really it's really i would say a few inches wide and a mile deep there are a, a certain sort of very specific subset of things that you can do with an open public blockchain um, and, and open public blockchains are very good at that, at that specific narrow slice of reality, very good at it. That's why I say a mile deep, um, but they're not a mile wide, right? They're, they're, they're not great for, you know, necessarily all these other applications, uh, where people are saying, you know, you can use a blockchain for this or that, that's people trying to shoehorn in applications that they think are important into a technology that has a lot of sizzle. And I'm, I'm also curious to really pick your brain here about like, what, what is that one skill that, that isn't taught in school that you wish you had learned maybe at a younger age? And it could be something security related. It could be something completely just off the charts. doesn't matter. What do you what do you have to say? The one skill that's not taught in school that I wish I had learned at a young age. There's there are a great many skills that I wish I had learned in school. <laughs> <laughs> I would say being patient and thorough with the analysis of any particular situation. And that's sort of one of the things that I learned in the investment management world. Uh, that you can look at a company, you can take a look at what what it's doing, but in order in order to understand truly what's going on, you have to really take a good hard look and spend a lot of time understand the background, you know, the backdrop, right? Why things function the way they do, you know, what's connected to each particular piece of the machine and why those particular connections function in the way that they do. And I just don't, I don't think in school people are taught analysis. I don't think people are really taught how to dig deep and, and say, okay, why does this machine company divide whatever pick your thing function in the way that it does? Uh, and, and, and you know, the teacher should find a cursory answer unacceptable uh, and should only accept an answer where there's, where a, a, a material amount of analysis has been done. Get to know the situation, you know, back and forth, left, right, and center. And you're, you're sort of forced to take the time to really dig into what's going on. Yeah. Do you think that's a generational thing? Like, you know, you have Gen, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen P, I don't know. You have all these different generations. And 
And uh, the, the the couple of kids that I have here that, that we're taking care of, she made a comment to me, the 11 year old, she said, well, you don't understand the you know, 2020 kids. And my wife and I got a kick out of it. Like 2020 kids, what do you mean? Like we're, we're, we're the, the kids into social media and TikTok and, you know, and we, we view things differently. So do you think it's a generation thing, like not wanting to analyze and go behind the scenes and take things apart? And I know that's your engineering brain that's talking right now, but what, what's the actual benefit to more people, I guess, within the IT industry wanting to do that or needing to do that? One cannot express complexity in a tweet. One cannot express complexity in a TikTok video. One can get to a main idea in a tweet. And I think that the, I think forcing people to distill information into, uh, you know, very specific ideas at the end of an analysis makes a lot of sense. But uh, human beings who, who embrace thinking in tweets uh, are, are human beings who are going to find that they they don't they never achieve the, the level of understanding of the world that they might otherwise I don't know if it's a generational thing or not a generational thing I do know that I do know that the idea that we can communicate in is no longer 160 characters whatever it was um, whatever it is now right uh, the idea that we can that we can communicate effectively and engage in any sort of intellectual discourse, uh, over social media, that concept is to me preposterous. We can't. Let let's say a company hit the security lottery and they were given a million dollars and all the security resor- resources in the world. Like they had the smartest security guys. They could buy whatever software. They could get whatever resources they need. What is that one thing that you would recommend? that they actually spend that money on? Well, obviously, selfishly, I'm going to say encryption. Okay. Uh, but. And why? Since you're probably not going to spend the full million dollars on encryption and you get to, you get to spread the money. Oh, you said, you said only one thing. I only get to pick one thing. Yeah, I guess it's, it's one thing or maybe it can be one concept or you got a million dollars. So if you can do more than one thing with it, then that's, that's quite all right. I'm going to pick encryption then. Um, Look, we, you know, why did we start Atacama? We started Atacama because we, we had the realization that, that encryption is underutilized. It's not utilized to the extent that, that it can or should be. And there are a variety of circumstances in which we can have far greater protection if we were simply to choose to encrypt our data in a way that is not connected to other systems, right? So, you know, Decryption of decryption on system B is not connected to system A, right? So just because the attacker has attacked system A doesn't mean they get access to system B, right? And also in a way that is sufficiently user-friendly that users don't complain over and over again and then have the thing taken out. Um, There's a huge amount that we can do simply by denying the attacker uh, the ability to read the data in spite of the attacker having access to the data. It's, it, we have shown that it's very difficult to prevent the attacker from accessing the data. They get in over and over again. But 
is there something we can do once the attacker has gotten in to prevent the attacker from reading what's there? And the answer for that is encryption. Okay. Great answer. Encryption it is, everyone. And also, Daniel, before I let you go, is there maybe a social media handle um, that you would like to recommend that if a Gumbo listener would like to maybe follow you or reach out to you on social media? I'm not a huge social media fan, but definitely check out our website, which is atacama.com. That's A-T-A-K-A-M-A.com. And you'll see what we're all about. And what does Atacama mean? Atacama is named after a desert in uh, South America, in Chile, actually spelled with a C instead of a K. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's actually a beautiful desert. Uh, and my wife and I were driving around the desert, and I was talking about the trip with some of my colleagues, and one of them said, sort of like what we built, the data desert. <laughs> and it stuck. We spelled it with a K instead of a C to avoid any confusion and also to make sure we get to the top of the Google search results. Mm. I think we have the name of the episode. How to get out of the data desert with security or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> it sounds cool. It sounds cool. But Daniel, uh, thank you so much for taking time out to appear on Data Protection Gumbo. And um, I really enjoyed the conversation. And until next time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.